0: We're in 1 Kings, chapter 18, verse 38. 1 Kings, chapter 18. The ring worked out real quick, and then we'll be on our way. Good to see everybody. We're thankful for those who are joining on the Internet as well who couldn't be here, but I know they want to be. They've said so. All right. In the study of verse 38 last week, we spent some time on the word consumed, so I'd like for us to go back and look at verse 38 again, read it, just review what we, re, what we learned about the word consumed, and then move on. There's some exciting stuff in here this morning. First Kings 18.38, then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. If you remember from the study last week, I've still got a pretty good ring in my ear from the monitor. If you remember from the study of last week, the word consumed is normally translated in the Bible as the word eat, E-A-T. And what we learn from that, as from other places in the Bible, is that God is using the senses to teach us something spiritual. And because we all have those senses, sometimes they're impaired or underdeveloped or overdeveloped, but we, for the most part, have them. Faith in God's Word, faith that God was who he said he was and faith that there was no God besides him. You see, that's just as important. For there are some religions who say, oh, we love your God, but we also love these other gods we have and we'll just set him right there next to ours. The Bible tells us there's no God beside him. The prayer Elijah prayed in comparison to those of the prophets of Baal, the prayer was very short. But boy, was it effectual. And the answer from God was spectacular. We also contrasted this good-tasting sacrifice, this sacrifice that God consumed because it pleased Him. He consumed it by fire. It was a pleasing sacrifice to Him. and We contrasted that to the ill taste that God has in his mouth for the church of Laodicea. What did he promise to do to that church in the book of Revelation? He promised to spew that church out of his mouth because they were lukewarm. So let's continue looking at how Israel in Elijah's day and the Laodicean church in the Revelation are so similar, even in their differences. God did not require Israel to do anything more or less than he will require the Laodicean church to do. Israel, the Israel we're reading about right here, was once zealous toward the Lord, but they fell away. Did you know the Laodicean church was the same way? You say, why? When was Laodicea zealous toward the Lord? What most people remember about the church at Laodicea is in Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus said, I have somewhat against thee. What they don't remember is that the church of Laodicea was once zealous toward the Lord as well. Listen to Paul's benediction in Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. If you're taking notes, just write it down. Don't try to turn there in a hurry. Colossians 4, verses 15 through 17. He wrote, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Memphis and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of Laodicea, of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle, or the letter, from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. There were a couple of things the Apostle Paul commanded to be done in this letter to the Colossians. He said, first of all, I want you to salute that church in Laodicea. Do you think Paul would have said that if the Laodicean church in that day were lukewarm? No. He would say, I've got a problem with you. He had no problem saying, i got a problem. Not the Apostle Paul. And the other thing he said was, the letter the Laodiceans wrote, I want you to read that in the church. He would never say that if he thought the Laodiceans wrote a letter that was full of bad doctrine or that was lukewarm, that uh, was this way one day and this way another day. So there was a day that Laodicea was zealous toward God, just like there was a day that Israel was zealous toward God. Had Laodicea been lukewarm in the days when the Colossian letter was written, Paul would not have saluted them, he would have scolded them. And they would not have written an epistle that Paul would find worthy to be read in the church. In that day their savor was sweet to the Lord. Their works tasted good to the Lord. But their works will one day stink. And the Bible tells us God will vomit them out of his mouth for their lukewarmness. That's what it means when he said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And as we've learned in our study of the book of Jude, there are Christians mixed in with the wolves in Laodicea. And in fact, in many churches, possibly most. And the wolves always seem to pull the Christians down, don't they? You say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm going to start going to bars and trying to win people to Jesus. You know what you'll do? You'll become a drunkard. Don't test the flesh. Don't have any confidence in the flesh. And it's the same way in the church. Now look back in verse 38. It said, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. Elijah had called this a burnt sacrifice before the fire of the Lord fell. And we commented on how Elijah called something that was not yet burnt as though it had already been burnt. And he did so because of his faith in the Lord. The burnt sacrifice, it was in Elijah's eyes just like it was in God's eyes. Burnt, past tense, even before it happened. If you've been with us long in this church, that's not the first time you've seen that. That God or man calls something that has not yet been as though it had already had been. It's the same principle by which I may claim Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Ephesians 2 verse 6, which says this about Jesus and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, where is my body right now? It's standing behind this pulpit in Maybank, Texas, on the earth but my spiritual man is raised together to heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm already there in God's eyes and therefore in my eyes. And just as the sacrifice, although it was wet, it was raw, it it was already burnt in Elijah's eyes because it was burnt in God's eyes. And all that's happening here is time is catching up with truth. Go back to the text where it says, and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That's what this consuming fire did to all of those things. You would expect fire to consume wood, wouldn't you? You would expect fire to consume dust and even the flesh of the animal. But what about water and stones? We cook on stones because they don't burn up. And we put out fire with water. We don't set water on fire. But we learn here that the fire of the Lord is much different, much more capable diversified than the fires we start. What do man-made fires have in common? They consume only that which is flammable, and they burn out at some point in time. In other words, they consume, and then they're quenched. Now, God can also do that with fire, but he can do even more than that, as is witnessed by the Scriptures. Listen to the text in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen for a fire that did not consume. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 3 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. All of the fires Moses had seen caused something to be burned up. If a bush was set on fire, I think of a West Texas tumbleweed every time I think of a bush. I wish I could get that image out of my mind and think of something prettier, but that's where I grew up. And if you lit a dry tumbleweed on fire, brother, it doesn't take long to consume it, and it's just a little pile of ashes. It didn't happen with this bush. And listen to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 for a tormenting fire that not only did not consume, but also was not quenched. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's an unquenchable fire. That's a fire that doesn't consume. Oh, those who are in the lake of fire because of their unbelief will wish they were consumed. They will wish the burning was over. Oh, if I can stand it only a little while longer, it shall be over. But it never will be. It torments forever and forever. Back to your text in verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Notice, and when all the people saw it. This is the basis upon which the people did the next things that you read about. What they saw. Their actions were based on their sight. For had their actions been based upon faith, this scene would have never happened in the first place. They would not have needed someone to hold such an event to prove who was God. They would have said the scriptures declare it, the prophets declare it, My faith declares it. I don't need you to have this contest. They would have been trusting in the Lord and serving him by faith. Listen to John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered, And said unto him, my Lord and my God. Now what did these people do when they saw the fire of heaven fall and consume the sacrifice? They said, the Lord, he is the God. What did Thomas do here? He said, my Lord and my God. After what he saw. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Like Elijah. It was good that Thomas believed after seeing. This is a good way to remember what faith is. Faith is believing God at his finished work, without having to fir- word, without having to first see his finished work. Let me say it again. Faith is believing God at his finished word, without having to first see his finished work. If you say, I'm from the spiritual show-me state of Missouri, and you're going to have to show me before I believe, well, that's going to cause a problem. Let's look at this further in the verse. It said they fell on their faces. Now, this is also an act we've seen repeated in the Scripture when people hear something or see something that amazes them, or perhaps it scares them. Or maybe they meet with a long-lost friend or a family member. Abraham fell on his face before God in Genesis 17 when God established his covenant with him. Joshua fell on his face before a man with a sword. When finding out that man was neither for Israel nor for his adversaries, but was instead the captain of the Lord's host. And these Israelites who saw God's fire fall from heaven, it fell on their faces. And I would have too, by the way, quaking in the dust like a worm. And after all that, they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. This was their answer to the choice Elijah presented to all of the people there in the beginning of this scene. In fact, it was found in verse 24 where Elijah said, And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And while we're thankful that these people declared the Lord as the God, it was still based upon what they saw. What does this mean? The next time they see something miraculous or wondrous, Perhaps that event will change their minds again to believe something else. You may ask, well, how could that possibly happen? How could someone besides God have the power to turn a person's heart with signs and miracles and wonders? Well, I'm glad you asked. Matthew chapter 24, write this down, please. Matthew 24, verses 23 through 24. Jesus said, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and listen to what they're going to do, and shall show great signs and wonders in so much that if it were possible, and it's not, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Jesus knew that when people act based upon what they see, it's easy to fool them because the great counterfeiter, Satan, counterfeits the true religion. He doesn't do it by being the polar opposite of what Jesus represents. He does it by trying to mirror, be just as close as he can. And boy, if you were here for the study of the book of Revelation, you learned that Tremendous truth, and you learned it profoundly. If you, like Thomas, who doubted, or like Israel, who halted between two opinions, that's doubting, if you must see to believe, then you will only believe what you see. If you must see to believe, then you'll only believe what you see. And boy, are you going to miss out. Our flesh likes to see the spectacular. Why else do we stand outside with our kids or grandkids in the oppressive summer heat to watch someone else set off a bunch of fireworks in the sky so we can watch the colorful explosions they make? Why do people sit in the freezing, cold, snowy football stadiums across the country to watch a ball game? Because those events contain excitement in the flesh. They appeal to the eyes, to the ears. There's loud bangs, spectacular catches, fast athletes, and big, jarring, bone-crushing tackles. And all of those things are pleasing to our physical senses. Well, what if, rather than going to one of those exciting events... You said, I'll just read the newspaper tomorrow. And you turn in the newspaper, and it says, at Harry Myers Park in Rockwall last night, the crowd enjoyed a wonderful display of pyrotechnic excellence with the fireworks and all of that that were set off, and that's all you had. Well, that's not very exciting, is it? The flesh doesn't jump up and down and say, boy, this is good. Ooh, this is good or if you just read the box score of a football or basketball game the next day and you didn't go, it doesn't please the flesh like what you see with your eyes when you're there in person. Now, if we're not careful, we will believe the devil's lie that church should be exciting to the physical senses rather than edifying to the spiritual senses. When I come to church, now we're all different. Don't be like me, and I'm not going to try to be like you. But when I come to church, you're not going to see me jumping up and down, hollering and running around the church, clapping loudly or high-fiving my neighbor. But don't mistake that for a lack of enthusiasm, because my spiritual man, the part of me that's redeemed already, has joy overflowing, and there's excitement that you can't see oh, it may come out in my works or my words or singing or teaching, but you can't fully grasp what God's done in me. But you can fully grasp what he's done in you if you're a Christian. If I could take every attribute of God's truth that he shares with me when I'm studying and give it to you, preach it to you just like he did to me, there would be no room for improvement in brother Andy's teaching, but I can't do that. I have the flesh. I have those distracting thoughts and sometimes my mind races ahead of what my mouth is capable of saying and I say the wrong word or or so, I do something distracting to the people. But let me tell you something. My joy doesn't end a few hours after the ball game's over. My joy is in Jesus because his joy is fulfilled in me. And I say the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God because of what his word says about it. Because his spirit bears witness with me that it's true, not because he came and set the altar on fire. He doesn't have to do that for me. And he doesn't have to do that for someone who walks by faith and not by sight. And the Bible tells us in Second Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. You know what these Israelites need right here after this? They need a good dose of the Bible. They need a good dose of the Bible, a dose with an endless supply of refills. Isn't it kind of irritating when you know what's wrong with you and you have no refills left in the medicine that you've been taking for years? and your doctor says you're going to have to come in for a visit. You go in for a visit and you get the same medicine that you already knew that you needed. And I know there there are some safety things. Uh, they need to test your blood and check your enzymes and all of that. I get that. But wouldn't it be nice to just have the unlimited refills for those things that you really need? Did you know we have that in God's word? We have an unlimited refill. And what these Israelites need to do is go straight to the law and the writings of the prophets. Learn the scriptures and be led by them. They should never require God to do something miraculous to please their physical senses in order for them to say, the Lord, He is the God. And neither should we. If you're not a Christian, this makes no sense to you. But if you are... Please learn from the Israelites in this passage. And that'll keep you from tuning into the television to these charlatans who say, Great things are going to happen today. We're going to have an exciting miracle healing service and all that, which they're not capable of doing in the first place. Let's look down in verse 40 now. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. By fire from heaven, God showed the children of Israel who was God. And now because of their weak spiritual condition, that weak spiritual condition that made them susceptible to being led astray by the prophets of Baal, it was necessary to eliminate that problem right away. Not one of them was spared. He said back in the text, let not one of them escape, and none of them escaped. What does this teach us? Remember, as Elijah was a type of Jesus Christ, as God's representative to the people, the prophets of Baal were Satan's representatives to the people. They were the ones, those prophets, who had deceived the children of Israel, including Ahab. So, what can we learn from Elijah's command, let not one of them escape? First of all, we'll read from Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, that means they begged or asked him, saying, if thou cast us out... into the sea and perished in the waters. So Jesus said unto them, that implies all of them, go. Then the text tells us the whole herd of swine, that is every one of them, perished. They ran down that steep place and they perished. Let not one of them go. Let not one of them escape. So from this text in Matthew, how many devils went into the swine? All of them. Jesus didn't say some of them, but to them, the word them, which implies all of them, unless he would say otherwise. And how many of the devil-possessed swine ran to their deaths in the sea, perishing? The whole herd, all of them. From our text in 1 Kings and our text here in Matthew, we learn that Jesus is leading up to a vital truth, about how he will judge those who oppose him. And one place where it's found is Jude, verse 6. Now, I'll not expound upon the verse in favor of our pastor doing so very soon. But it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. The, the text or the part of the text that says, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. So that's that's a whole group of them. And there's nothing in the construction of the language here that says, except for some of these. It's the whole group. Because Jude gave us a category into which every one reserved in everlasting chains falls. What is this category? The ones who kept not their first estate the ones who left their own habitation. There's no escape provision made for even one of them, or Jude would have said so. Now look at this verse from a different angle, the, the verse in Jude. The ones who kept not their first estate but left their own habitation have a common feature, have a common ending. They're reserved in everlasting chains. Now had Jesus made an exception... He would have said so. In fact, when Jesus makes an exception, he's very clear about it. John chapter 17, verse 12. John 17 is that high priestly prayer. and We had the great privilege of getting to read, getting to soak in with our spirits as Jesus prayed to the Lord. And he said to his father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. That. Those that thou gavest me I kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. That doesn't mean the son of perdition was saved and then lost. He never was saved. He was with Jesus physically. He even carried the treasury bag, but he was never in Christ. He was with Christ, but he was never in Christ. It says, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So when there's an exception in a sentence, Jesus plainly tells us. Now perhaps we understand more fully why Elijah commanded the people concerning the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. Many Christians have struggled with the doctrine of eternal security. That is, once I'm saved, do I continue to be saved? And when they come to realize that Jesus will not lose any whom he has saved, it brings those Christians great relief. The Anxiety leaves. I've seen it happen. And that's a, that's a precious truth. And that's, if I could sum up what knowimsaved.com is all about, that captures it right there. If you're in Christ, you'll never be out of Christ. And there's only one way to be in Christ, and that's to trust his finished work. And that's what we preach here. We don't preach it here because of what the website says. The website and what we preach here say so because of what the Bible says. That's where we get our doctrine. And Lord willing, that's what we'll keep doing by His grace. But you know, there's perhaps one who may believe that God won't punish every unbeliever. That He will somehow show some of them an escape hatch from the judgment to come. No, friend, our text... And the whole counsel of the Bible is very clear. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape? That word escape. If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Did you notice who did not escape death at the hands of Elijah and the children of Israel? The prophets of Baal. Every one of them. Had even one of them repented and trusted the Lord for salvation, that he is the God, then they would have been saved. They'd have been saved from the wrath poured out on the other 449 prophets of Baal. Why is that? I thought all the prophets of Baal were were killed. That's right. But a person who becomes a Christian is no longer a prophet of Baal but a child of God. It's the way it was then. It's the way it is today. Each one here who is a Christian, each one watching who is a Christian, was once lost under the dominion of Satan, just like a prophet of Baal. We were afar off, but now we've been made nigh by the blood of Christ, and there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Back in your text, you have the place where this slaughter of these prophets took place. It's the brook Kishon. This was the same brook where God delivered Sisera in the book of Judges and his mighty host into the hands of the judge Deborah and the children of Israel. And it was there where God delivered the prophets of Baal to that same end, to their destruction. Verse 41, and Elijah said unto Ahab, now remember Ahab is the king over Israel, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Anybody remember how long this drought was in Israel up to this time? It's three and a half years, wasn't it? Three and a half. See, it's been so long you didn't even remember. That's a long drought, isn't it? You can't even remember the last time it rained in Israel. What did he tell Elijah or, or what did Elijah tell Ahab? He said, "Get thee up, so who also fell on his face at all of this? the king of Israel, Ahab, the one about whom the Bible says he had done worse than all the kings before him, walking the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, this king was now an object of God's mercy. It would have been just as easy for Elijah to say. Take the prophets of Baal and take the king and go slay them. But he didn't do it. Instead, Elijah told him, get up and go eat. This must have been a stressful day for Ahab. Who knows if he was one who halted between two opinions about God or or if he just was a straight-up follower of Baal. But he'd seen and heard everything this day just like everyone else. But in either case, God gave him the opportunity to repent. Whether or not Ahab does that, we'll soon find out as we study. He said there in verse 31, after he said, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. And when you see that word for used this way, you could also put the word because there. So you have a result. For or because there is a sound of abundance of rain. This was to be the reason for which Ahab was to get up, eat, and drink. And the word sound is translated just as often, if actually more often, as the word voice or noise or proclamation. And yes, thunder, which was a forecast of rain. Now whether it was a thunder audible only to Elijah, I'm not sure. But it was at least audible to him, even if others didn't hear it. There are three words here in this text that tell us about Elijah's faith in God. Learn just a little bit more about his faith in God. Number one is that word sound. That tells us where the rain is, when it's going to happen. It is at hand. When you hear thunder, what do you know? Rain's around the corner. Whether you get it or not, somebody's about to get it. So you have that word sound. You know, I don't hear thunder in India before it rains there. But I hear thunder and rock wall before the rain begins there. So that means it's right around the corner, not somewhere else. Then there's the word abundance. The word abundance tells us how much it was. That is, God's going to multiply the rain. We learn what it was, the rain, and, or, or we will learn what it is, the rain. But the word abundance says he's not going to just send a drop or two to this land. This was a land that had neither dew nor rain for three and a half years. So this abundance would have to be an atmospheric river of moisture training across Israel so that not only was everything full but flowing over. Abundance. And then there's the word rain. And that tells us what it was. God wasn't sending snow or dust or manna or quail, but rain. And it was that element that was withheld from the Israelites because of their sin. Rain was something they had taken for granted just like they had taken God for granted. And now they have proclaimed the Lord, he is the God. So now they're going to receive the rain they long ago took for granted. In all of this, we see Elijah's faith that God will give them what they need, rain, how much they need, abundance, and when they need it, as the word sound means it's right around the corner. It's about to happen. And we'll see even more so how great Elijah's faith is when we look at verse 43 next week. But this will be a good place for us to stop at the end of verse 41, and God willing, we'll pick up in verse 42 next week. Any questions about the lesson, comments? Yes, sir. you all look up in your Bibles that three and a half years. After three and a half years, we had a broken curse. After three and a half years, we have, you said, a broken promise. Look up three and a half years in your Bible. All right, well, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for all who came, for all who watched, and Lord, I pray that any of the distractions that may be in our minds, things we brought in from this world, things we may have been thinking about during the message, as the flesh so often does, would just be burned off and washed away, and that the truths from your word would find a lodging place in our spiritual man to build us up in the faith that was once delivered to the saints, and also, Lord, to draw the lost unto Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation.